it's okay to fail. I think we're taught you have to be perfect. You have to get the 4.0. You have to fill out all the bubbles correctly and follow somebody's plan. But you're going to end up learning a lot more by figuring it out. So don't let your fear limit you from doing something brave. We need brave people right now to step up and say, I'm going to do something about it. I'm not just going to sit in my bubble. Welcome to Cause and Purpose, the show about leaders, innovators, and change agents working on the front lines to solve some of the world's greatest social challenges. I'm Mike Spear, and today's guest is Becky Straw. Becky is the co-founder and CEO of The Adventure Project, an innovative nonprofit organization that helps create jobs in developing countries by giving emerging entrepreneurs the tools, education, and resources they need to launch and scale successful businesses. The entrepreneurs they support are not only able to support themselves and their families, but they're also working to elevate their communities through improved health, decreased hunger, safer environments, and clean water. Becky, it's great to see you today. Thanks so much for joining us. How old were you and and when did you first know that this is how you wanted to focus your career? It was definitely when I started working retail, and that's when I intimately knew I did not want to do that. Yeah, in my head, I thought like, oh my gosh, I kind of, I love art. I was a graphic design major in undergrad. And so I thought like, oh, this would be so cool to combine art with fashion and retail. Then I started doing it and I realized how much I hated it. It was so wrong for me. Through trying things, you realize quickly what you don't like. And I I didn't like it. So uh, during that time, I really thought about like, when was I most alive? When did I really enjoy myself? And it was, it was traveling. Then it was also giving back and those opportunities I had to do volunteer work other places. What sort of volunteering did you do? So I grew up in quotes in a church, which is what people sometimes say to be hokey, you know, like I grew up in the church, but I grew up near Berkeley, California. So like hippie church where we did a lot of social justice work just through my youth group. Uh, I also was a college swimmer. I swam in college, so I didn't have a ton of time, but that also played a role because I felt like I had spent most of my life or childhood through the college years intimately focused on things that brought me joy things that, you know, were inward, you know, working out, swimming, lifting weights, you know, uh, sorority, you know, things that really made me selfishly happy. And so I was, I was keen to see like, what does the other half of the world look like? Yeah. You know, through having nothing or very little, that's usually when I had the most joy was when I was out in the middle of quote, nowhere with other people and, and just being around family and friends that I really realized, you know, that's what's most meaningful. And I, I wanted to move my life towards that. Interesting. Was there like an organization you were drawn to in particular, or was it just through the church that you got to do these things? It actually was that I hated my job so much, but I wasn't a quitter. So I was like, well, how can I quit without quitting? <laughs> <laughs> this is like when you're, you're doing your first job, you're like 22, you know, you don't know what to do. So I basically just told them, I decided I'm going to go back to grad school, but first I need to get some international development experience. So I'm going to Romania in two weeks. So I put in my two weeks notice and decided to go volunteer in Romania. Why Romania? Quite frankly, I wanted to work with children and it was the cheapest opportunity (laughs) available at the time. Flights were cheaper to Romania than to Africa. One of the main reasons of the decision, but it ended up being a a life-changing decision because I learned so much there and it was uh, such a wonderful, warm organization, an organization I'm still 
giving to and, and part of. It's called Tanner Romanian Mission, but it's essentially this couple from Ohio who, after the fall of communism in 89, decided to volunteer there, and they basically never left. And they ended up saving, for lack of a better word, and adopting 34 kids uh, out of the government orphanage and helping to raise them. They adopted 34 kids? Yeah, they have like, I want to say they have about four homes now, like the girls' home, boys' home. What's so fascinating about this time period in Romania was because of communism, they were really trying to build up the military. And so if you were required, if you were female, I believe, to have five children. And there were certain levels. I think if you had nine kids, you got a free government car. Like there were all these bonus structures if you um, produced a lot of offspring. But that also meant if there was something wrong with your children, in quotes, it was socially acceptable to give them away. So a lot of times the kids would just have, you know, cerebral palsy or they would have some minor limp or cleft palate. And that was reason enough for you to be like, okay, well, communism, right? The government will take care of the kids. And so tragically what happened is there's a lot of government orphanages that were kind of hidden away in these little villages where kids were abused and tragically a lot of them passed away. They were malnourished because there was just not enough money or funds to actually take care of these children. So it was really tragic. For example, a lot of kids spent the first 10 years of their lives in a crib with one other kid. So when this couple came in, they had to teach a lot of kids how to walk. Um, They were very stunted and malnourished. Um, When I was there, there was a 12-year-old that I was helping teach how to ride a bike. You know, there's just simple things that these kids never got to experience because they physically spent their entire lives in a crib. It was heartbreaking. But through that experience, I really realized that a lot of the pervasive poverty in this village was tied to the fact that nobody had a job and that economically things were not good. And so trade was low and people were really um, subsisting rather than thriving. So it inspired me to, A, I want to work in this sector my whole life, and B, I I know nothing about how to do that. (laughs) So I really need to go back to grad school and get a degree in in international development because I'm really passionate to try and figure out some of these problems. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the employment aspect of that? I know it's it's obviously tied to the Adventure Project and, you know, what you're trying to do there, as well as I, I noticed a few quotes on the site about like the number one thing the parents dream of is having a job. Talk a little bit more about the importance of that within the community. Well, you know, I can share, at least in Romania, that like, I remember one time being out to dinner and I was 24 at the time and they brought the chef up and the chef basically said like, I cannot take care of my kid anymore. And he was crying, like he was weeping. So it wasn't that he didn't love him. It was that he physically didn't have enough money to take care of his kid at special needs. You realize so much of the problems today are tied to wealth and prosperity. I could talk about that for days, perfect example is that, you know, in Kenya, like primary education is free, but a lot of people can't send their kids to school because they lack the four to five dollars it takes to buy the uniform or to buy the textbooks. So there's all these barriers that are intrinsically tied to the economy. It makes perfect sense. A lot of people are just doing their best to survive off less than two dollars a day. It's really heroic of them to be putting, you know, a step forward every day when you have so many barriers that make you risk averse, you know, really have to prioritize how you're going to keep your family fed while trying to grow. For me, at least, I really feel strongly that having a robust economy and having wealth, and I mean wealth by just, you know, middle class wealth, having a little bit of money can completely transform the trajectory of your life. Yeah, absolutely. 
So how long were you in Romania for before you came back? I was there for 10 weeks. So it wasn't a long enough. It wasn't a long enough trip. All this in 10 weeks? I moved fast, Mike. It's an impact for 10 weeks. That's incredible. Yeah, no, it was great. And the night before grad school, I went to Denver and I worked for the Denver Rescue Mission as a working with homeless families, helping them get into permanent housing. And again, most people who are homeless are actually not what people think of when they think of a homeless person. It was actually families with children. That means sometimes they're staying on a friend's couch or staying somewhere or staying in a car, but they are homeless. And one of the main reasons that they can't find housing is they never save enough for that deposit plus the one month's rent. And so it was a really innovative program that Denver Rescue Mission was running where they were just saying, hey, like, let's get you some coaching and financial uh, budgeting. We'll pair you with a mentor and then um, we're going to pay your first month's rent and security deposit. And I know over 90% of those families were still in permanent housing after year one. And so it was just a really innovative program that was solving a real need. And I, I was really inspired by what they were doing there too. After earning a master's degree from Columbia University, Becky became a consultant for UNICEF, working on data analysis for water and sanitation projects around the world. She quickly realized that working for a large bureaucratic organization just wasn't for her. So when one of her mentors invited her to a meeting with Scott Harrison, who was just in the process of launching a then unknown organization called Charity Water, she jumped at the opportunity. Um, I did a lot of spreadsheets. It was such a fascinating lens into the inner workings of the UN. But yeah, I was in, you know, this windowless cubicle, really looking at data around the globe in terms of financing and what was being expended on water and sanitation. And just having an advocate like that was phenomenal. And, and, and one of those people was like, well, I'm not hiring, but I'm meeting this guy, Scott, who's starting this water charity in New York. And he's a real hustler. And I'm meeting him at a diner at 8 a.m. tomorrow. And so that's essentially what I did. I crashed his breakfast meeting <laughs> with my resume and all the things printed out. And I was dressed like an intern. And he, he looked at me and he said, like, I don't have money and I don't, I don't want to hire a nerd. I don't want a UN person. Like, we're a cool charity. I just kept emailing him. And right before I left my internship at UNICEF, I stole all of, I didn't say steal, they're free, all of the publications that they put out. I basically took all of them from every country. Then went back to him and I said, look, you haven't responded to my last three emails, but I'm willing to volunteer. I have 142 countries of data on water and sanitation. You know, that's what I've been doing. If I can help, be helpful. And so that's when he finally said, like, well, I want you to talk to a board member. And then I basically crashed and worked from there for months for free until there was enough money to bring me on. Most importantly, as I was looking at all of the data and all of the research, it was so simple that, you know, at the time, it was like one in 10 people are living without clean drinking water. It's a huge, massive issue. It was more than a billion at the time, 10 years, 15 years ago. And I knew there needed to be somebody like Scott in the sector, um, somebody young, somebody energetic, and somebody to really show. He came back with all these wonderful photos. This guy's going to be on fire because America needs to know this story and they need to know that there are solutions out there. You know, water was, is one of the most underfunded sectors. It was something that I was really jazzed about. I, I believed in him and I'm glad. What a unique opportunity. At the time, it was really rare to have an organization so focused on storytelling. Even today, spending money on brand and marketing is still somewhat taboo. But at the time, it was really a revolutionary idea. When I think people on the outside, it's so easy to say, like, oh, you shouldn't spend any money on marketing. I would argue that being in UNICEF and being on the other side where we were building consortiums of nonprofit partnerships in the U.S., trying to get them more funding 
their marketing sucked. I hate to say it, but it's like, well, then you raise 24 million a year because Charity Water is doing it or now they're raising 75 million. You know, telling really good stories and really powerful stories drives revenue. And there's proof of that, you know, and um, Dan Pallotta is a great author that I follow a lot. And he talks a lot about investing a dollar to help bring in $4 of revenue. That's great. You should try and find donors who want to do that. You know, I always see like, can my board help me cover administrative expense? And does that administrative expense end up bringing in, you know, four times the revenue? That's great. You know, if you play the game and the game doesn't change and you're not bringing in more money, then... I would argue that that's not really where your money should be going, right? That must have been an amazing time to be a part of Charity Water. What was your role there as someone who's a bit more analytical and program oriented than what Charity Water is known for? So managing our portfolio, I spend about a third of my time, mainly in Africa and Haiti, just vetting new water programs and managing those water programs in that portfolio. It was all hands on deck at first. And then I kind of really was drawn to the water aspect. And that was kind of where my background was anyway. So it was um, really fun and really, really fascinating. I I just feel there's so few opportunities. And and I was really thankful to be on that that ride. The truth is charity water is a lot more data driven than most people realize. I think so, because I think there was demand from the public for that people want to know where their money is going. And they want really good work. I would say that's always been a focus in the background, even though most people see the marketing and the video and the photos, um, making sure that the money went to the right place was very important. You know, I was there for three years and then I was asked to resign. And I think for me, that was a really hard conversation and a hard period of my life. But without that, I never would have left. And I think at the same point, like the adventure product never would have existed because I probably would have stayed there forever. I really love the organization. I, I will just share that like, for better or worse, I was completely blindsided and that was really hurtful on a personal level, but it was also helpful in the sense that a few months later, I launched the Adventure Project. I was just kind of like, okay, well, what's next? One of my really strong beliefs, and especially at the time of being at Charity Water, is that a lot of people were thanking us for the water. You know, and I was so fortunate to be on the ground and hearing directly from people who had received water, you know, a rehabbed well or something. But then there was always somebody asking me too, like, well, are you hiring? And I really felt strongly and passionate about we spend so much money flying people over and there's missionaries and volunteers and everybody wants to dig their own well. But people in developing countries want the same thing as you and me. They want that purpose and they want that um, passion of having employment. You know, a job can help change your life and it can change your family's life and provide stability. You know, I really feel strongly that one of the best ways that we can really help people who are living in less than $2 a day is, is to walk with them and listen to what they want and build capacity, which is a very, um, I guess, UN term, but it's true. It's true. It's like, you can't just keep saying like, we're going to send over volunteer doctors. Well, what if I get sick when your doctor isn't here? That's what I think sometimes as a country, we are so philanthropically focused. I know you've seen this a lot at State Classy, like you are that to your DNA was like, how do you motivate people to give and get them involved and start fundraisers? People do incredible things to help others. But I just really felt passionately like if we're going to have so many people so amped and jazzed to raise money to help, it should be going to the right places and the right reasons. You know, to circle back to that thread with Charity Water, I, I was really passionate about sustainability of work. One in three wells in Africa are broken. 
just this idea that there's so many nonprofits raising money to drill new wells, when in actuality, a lot of the reasons these wells are breaking is just because they don't have spare parts, they don't have tools, they don't have trained mechanics, and nonprofits choose not to really do that work because that's so hard. It's hard to get funding for, but it's also not really sexy, and it means you have to stay in the village for a long time, and you have to build capacity, and it's not as fun as being able to go in, drill a well, take a picture, send it to your donors, and everybody's crying because we're weeping tears of joy that the village now has water. So, you know, I'm proud to just be the advocate for the unsexy, (laughs) just all the things that we don't have a picture of, but make a world of difference about whether that child has water 30 days or a year from now. Yeah. That's what I care about most. I think that's great. And it's been a common thread among the guests we've had so far, doing those unsexy things that just have to get done. A lot of people think that philanthropy is all about galas and just giving back a little bit when you can, but social impact takes real grit. I think it's something that doesn't get enough attention. I know you sacrificed a lot to launch the Adventure Project, but it's a side of social entrepreneurship that most people don't get to see. Along that homeless conversation, so I didn't take a salary for over a year and a half. And so when my credit card kind of maxed out, well, two cards maxed out, (laughs) that was really the sign of like, "Uh oh, I ended up moving on to friends' couches. And I just like lived on friends' couches for 10 months. But I also had to take some vulnerability and be like, I need help. And what ended up happening was I was just overwhelmed with people offering uh, places to stay and saying, you know, you can stay with me. It was really like just such a warm reception of people who wanted to be part of that story. And I think that was such a loving um, lesson that I learned that if you need help, there, there are so many people out there who just want to help. They want to know how. But I think that's incredibly common. And Jessica Murray talks about this too in her episode. There are just so many causes that need support, it's hard to know where to begin, and people just don't believe in their ability to have an impact where it matters. It definitely underscores the need for powerful storytelling. Another thing you do with the Adventure Project is take a holistic approach, where you're not just building one targeted solution, but providing wraparound services to ensure the objectives are met. We work in water, health, hunger, and the environment, and we're looking at, okay, what are some of the reasons that children under five uh, die? And how can we solve some of those problems by creating jobs? Well, caretakers, for example, like could we support local organizations that are training men and women to be well caretakers and well mechanics? And by learning those skills, they're earning a living, fixing those wells. Communities have buy-ins, meaning the community is paying four cents per jerry can, so they're paying a nominal fee. And then they know that they have access to clean water and it, it's essentially a business model. So we're looking, that's kind of the adventure theme and, and what we called ourselves the adventure project is how can we philanthropically give, but look through a business lens. So we almost act like a VC. So we're ventures that are adding something positive to the world. And how can we solve those problems more cost effectively and sustainably? I think so often it's so easy to fundraise if you're like, oh, we have this community doesn't have a school. We need to raise money for a school. You know, I tell the story about Romania a lot because this is one of my first big mess ups was we saw all these street kids without shoes and it was negative 10 degrees out. I was freezing. You know, they kept calling me like the sorority girl from California, but I was freezing the whole time. And, uh, you know, kids had holes in their socks and were wearing flip flops. So we did a big fundraiser, like these kids need shoes. You know, all my friends donated. We were like the Oprah of shoe givers that day passed out all the shoes. We felt like champions. And then we went back the next weekend to town to go buy our food. 
and none of the kids had shoes on. They were all back to their flip-flops and it was devastating. What, what is going on? And and so their parents had sold them. And I think that was my first lesson was like, oh my God, I'm such an idiot thinking that the most important need that that family had was shoes for that kid. When maybe the parents needed money for medicine or food or, you know, to pay a bill and how egotistical and white savior am I to think that that was the most important pressing need of that family. That's always, you know, kind of in the back of my mind whenever I'm thinking through our programs was how can it be driven by the local community and and fulfilling a need the community has voiced and listening to them and trying to see how can we raise money to make that happen. For me, at the heart of everything I did was I just wanted to be very genuine in whatever I took on. Um, I also talked to a lot of organizations that I knew were incredible and doing incredible work. And I said, look, like what you're doing is great, but nobody knows about it. Like, how can I help you? Or could I join you and then help raise money for you or get millennials involved in what you're doing? They all came back to me and said, no, but if you started an organization like this, like we would love to receive support from you. And so that was really interesting for me where they were like, we don't want to manage thousands of donors. That's not what we're interested in. We, we work with the Gates Foundation or we're really data driven, you know, as an implementing partner, but we would love it if you told our story. And so that was another impetus was I wasn't just like, well, I'm going to do this because I want to be a founder or something like that. It was really based on um, oppressing me, both from local community-led uh, organizations and, and also people like my co-founder. Um, my co-founder, Jody is an incredible woman. She has six kids, which now that I have two children, I feel like I owe her a million dollars. So I'm like, I can't believe you launched an organization when you had six children. You know, she was just a wife of a worship pastor and two of her kids are from Sierra Leone. And so she knew that she wanted to raise her kids to be very globally minded and was very concerned about just making sure money went to the right place. And I think that's how we all feel. She said, you know, I'm never going to be rich. I just want to know that what I'm giving is actually helping people and not hurting them. That was a big uh, inspiration for us. And that's, that's who our audience is. It's people who say like, look, I'm never going to be Bill Gates, but I want to give and I want to know that it's going to the right place. And it's actually helping parents like myself raise their families and strengthen their families and save children's lives. That was a big kind of vision for us was could we build an organization full of like-minded people who also, you know, share the same values we have. And we're so thankful we do. We have about 10,000 individuals now who are supporting us. Wow. 10,000. Why do you think you've been so successful at engaging those younger, smaller donors? I think a lot of it comes from the trust factor, relatability. A lot of people desire a little bit more education. They want to peel back the layers of the onion to know where their money is going. It's like people who like to invest. They like to actually look at their stocks. They, want, they don't want to just like give it to somebody to manage. They're curious about why their money is being effectively spent. And, you know, what are the stories or what are the lessons they can learn by giving to create jobs versus just helping give something away? That's a great point, though. How do you select entrepreneurs to be in the program? So that's kind of our secret sauce is that we do a lot of heavy vetting and site visits to determine who are the most effective local organizations out there that uh, really need catalytic support to grow. And so then we come alongside them and we say, like, how can we give you primarily funding, but then also marketing support, tech support, monitoring and reporting, you know, how can we help amplify their work and help them expand either where they're working or helping them scale to new places? What do you look for? How do you evaluate whether or not that that 
business or entrepreneur is, is someone or something that you want to fund? We fund everyone from people who are making charcoal efficient, clean cook stoves to helping to train women to run, you know, water kiosk businesses, you know, it kind of runs the gamut. Typically we say we look, we look for three things. The first being leadership, you know, do they have a strong leadership? Do they have a cohort that we believe in? Secondly, do they have a a demand driven product, which I think is really key. It's so often you see these new innovations that that come out, um, kind of the life straws, you know, all these cool techie things, especially with water, you know, filtration systems. But if they're not needed by the local community or the local community doesn't see them as a viable model, then I wouldn't say that they're appropriate. So it's really looking at, you know, what is their appropriate technology there? And then third, do they have the power or capacity to, to serve a billion people? living in extreme poverty. So we don't want to just support something that kind of only works in one place or one region, but we're really looking at, okay, could we take your business model and replicate it other places? Do you share that vision? Going back to the wall mechanic training program, Water for People uh, has implemented that program in one district in Uganda, and now it's been so successful. They've fixed every well in the district. We're starting to drill deep boreholes in regions where there is no water at all. But the goal is like, could you provide 100% coverage in one district, which would be the first district on the continent, pretty much, um, especially in East Africa. And then could that replicate somewhere else? So I think this year they're starting in a different district in Uganda and seeing if they can replicate the same exact business model in new areas. How do you go about evaluating the success of a project longer term? And you know, when somebody maybe graduates from the program or it becomes something that uh, you're not going to align yourselves with? We have a great partner in Kenya and Tanzania doing charcoal efficient stove programs, uh, training women to become stove entrepreneurs. What that means is a lot of women come in with very little experience and then they leave with hopefully a lot more. You know, for some women, they've done two to three years of the program. Some are asking for more support. What does that mean? What are they asking? But then most importantly, like, what's the delta? Like, what are they going to learn or produce from this next tranche of funding? Is it worth putting more money into their business or into their mentorship? Uh, What would we get out of it in terms of growth? Because you can look at it very literally and be like, okay, well, if we invest $2,000 in training one woman, you know, how much is she then earning after a year? And sometimes you can look at it and say like, oh gosh, well, you know, she's only earning an extra thousand dollars a year more. You know, some people would argue like, well, maybe you should have given her the thousand dollars. But conversely, you know, she's not only earning a thousand dollars per year profit on her own, but she's employing three people, which is creating more jobs. And then she's producing 10,000 stoves, helping 10,000 families gain access to a life-saving product that they need in their homes. Wow, the impact of that must be incredibly difficult to track. How are you measuring success of the programs? I mean, it's so important. And I think one of the blessings of doing our work is you can easily see whether something's working or not because people are buying the product. We're not ever giving anything away. People have to purchase the product from the entrepreneur that we're training. So if they're not happy, they're not buying it. So we're able to really see how sales are going and if we're creating an impact or not. You want to make stoves. If people have access to charcoal, it usually means they're in a peri-urban area. You want a fire-based stove. People, you know, have firewood nearby and prefer collecting firewood. You know, how has that evolution gone from you and and a co-founder basically to bootstrapping and living on couches to where you guys are now? Like six months ago, I would have said something completely different about growth rate, um, which I think everyone, everyone feels that way. 
but yeah, it's been interesting. And we started with, um, I remember $4,000 in a Google spreadsheet kind of saying like, here's what we have to do to get started. I can't take credit. It's actually those tens of thousands you know, of people. We have over 300 monthly donors who are, are like the core of our organization and they are just so committed and incredible people that are making this happen. We wouldn't be here without people like that who are just giving so generously month after month and helping us kind of grow and continue to take on new organizations and, and new countries. Even though it was the pandemic, you know, because of them, we were able to expand our work to Togo and Ghana this year, which I'm um, considering, you know, the crisis and just how chaotic and awful this year has been. Um, we've still been able to make some really good traction and, and give generously because of people like that. Have you guys taken a hit revenue-wise during the pandemic or has it been okay? We are doing great with individuals. We did get some money from the Dutch government this year, which is really lovely. You know, I will say a lot of retail partnerships that we had in the works uh, did pause, you know, which I understand. And, but I will say going back to those monthly donors, we've had three people reach out and say, I need to pause my gift because I lost my job just the testament of people who are like, I've lost my job, but I still want to give or people who are hanging in there and, and making philanthropy a priority. It brings me to tears. It's like so heartwarming. These are people that they've never met, but recognizing that they have it much worse off dealing with this pandemic, you know, to be in Africa, like imagine trying to say like, okay, I've got to prevent my kids from getting COVID, but we don't have clean water. That's heartbreaking. So having individuals who are so philanthropic, we call them our collective, but these are people that are collectively giving each month is you know, what keeps me going. For organizations who haven't yet created a monthly giving program, how did you first launch the collective? We built a program around the idea that each month you're supporting a different job creation program in a different country. I'm still learning. I'm still trying to figure out what resonates with our audience. I sent an email and we said like, look, like with all the subscriptions out there around the world, if you are feeling totally overwhelmed, this is a subscription that you'll feel really good about. You can set it and forget it and know that, or you're not going to forget it, but every month you're going to get an email knowing where your money went. You're kind of checking one thing off your plate by becoming a monthly supporter with us. You know, and, and data is showing that like there are people who that's their first gift is actually a monthly gift. It's not the one-time gift, or it's not the email sign up. There are a lot of people now who are just like, yep, I get this and I want to join. It's really encouraging. I think we launched our, our monthly giving program five years ago, and I, I wish I launched it a long time ago. If you're a nonprofit or you're starting something, I always say just start with monthly gifts. And I will also say too, like a lot of our monthly donors still give one time too. Um, I mean, I'm a monthly donor and I still make a gift at the end of the year too. It's not going to detract me from giving. And if you're thinking about becoming a monthly donor, if you're just an individual, it is like the best way that you can really support an organization you love because you're able to help that organization breathe a little bit and say, okay, how much money are we, do we have aside for this program or that program? Let's forecast ahead. Can we hire someone? You know, you're giving them access to, to data basically that they can rely on some money for years to come. Even if it's $5 a month or $10 a month, it helps organizations make decisions. That recurring revenue is incredibly important for stability and planning. 
If you study great organizations, many of them tend to actually increase their investments in growth and human capital during times of adversity. One of the founders of Lyft was saying he thought COVID represented one of the best opportunities for starting a new business because markets and demand for products and how we operate in society will change as we make our way through the pandemic. Similarly, you launched the Adventure Project during a time of great personal uncertainty. What are your thoughts on people getting involved with social entrepreneurship today? My own story came from a story of uncertainty. You know, as you can imagine, starting at Charity Water, I wasn't making a ton of money to begin with. Well, and, and I was volunteering the first few months too. So I, it's not like I left there with a lot of savings. Uh, so it was a really scary time for me personally, but it was also a great time to be like, I'm going to take this risk. You know, I'm going to take this momentum and this energy and channel it and just see what happens. Um, because what do, what do I have to lose? One of my board members said something really astute to me where he, hearing my pitch and he was like, tell me all the reasons why we should launch the adventure project. And I gave him all the reasons and he said, well, tell me the reason not to launch it. And I basically thought for a second, I was like, well, I guess just the fear that I might fail. Like that's scary. And he said, okay, well then this is what you're going to do. You're just going to not worry about failing. So because what happens is everyone worries about failing and they don't go anywhere because they're spending so much energy worrying about failing. You're just going to focus on working. If you do the work, you're going to be successful. And I thought that was so freeing. And I think some people just need to hear that. Like, it's okay to fail. I think we're taught you have to be perfect. You have to get the 4.0. You have to fill out all the bubbles correctly and kind of follow somebody's plan. But you're going to end up learning a lot more by figuring it out. And there's so many other people like yourself, uh, you know, to listen to and, and get resources and insights from. So don't let your fear limit you from doing something brave. We need more people to step up now. Uh, just, you know, looking at um, our own economic and social injustice domestically and our healthcare crisis, you know, there are so many needs that we have. We need brave people right now to step up and say, I'm going to do something about it. I'm not just going to sit in my bubble. Imposter syndrome is very real too. It's just so easy to sit back and say someone more qualified probably has this covered. And I think also people think, well, that's not me or I can never be like, blah, I'm so fortunate to have worked under Scott. You and I both know a lot of founders. It's like when you peel the onion off, it's like they're regular people, <laughs> they're human beings. I think so often we want to put people like that on a pedestal for all the incredible work they've done. But at the end of the day, they make faults too. They're not perfect. So I don't think you need to be like gilded some sort of crown in order to do something. If someone is listening to this, they are so blessed already. We've been given so much in the U.S., so much education, so much opportunity that you actually owe it to the world to put your thing out there and do something that is meaningful because there are so many people who aren't in your position who would die to have the opportunities that you have. Yeah, that's right. And, and personally, I feel an obligation to sort of earn that retroactively. You know, I've, I've been given so much and a lot of what I'm working on is trying to, you know, make good on that. On uh, what I've been given from a lot of what you've talked about and kind of how you know your, your work experience, you guys are very data driven. How do you guys look at uh, your impact at Adventure Project and, and how do you measure it? And there's a few different ways, like I, said, I mentioned, like economically, how are we helping to stimulate not only the entrepreneurs' profit margins? You know, are they opening bank accounts, um, which is a huge sign that people actually have some money to save, which is really revolutionary for a lot of people. 
And then the social societal impacts of, you know, what, what are they putting out into the world, whether it's stoves or keeping wells working or healthcare, really working with world-class organizations that are doing kind of random control trials and really always learning and testing new ways of working to figure out, you know, how can they deliver a better product to somebody in need at an affordable price. There, there's many indicators. So I said, like, we work with the Dutch uh, government on a, a data to development grant, seeing, like, could we help stimulate more revenue for people in water and agriculture by utilizing data? So uh, what that means is, like, we have Android phones in the field that runs off OCFO, which is a Dutch organization software to collect the data in real time. And then it, it caches until you get to a Wi-Fi hotspot. So it's kind of built for the field and field tested. That data goes into the back end and we're able to make decisions off of, of that data in terms of survey data, you know, asking customers, you know, how do they like their product or, you know, gathering entrepreneurs data and like, how are they doing have they sent a kid to school, which is actually my, my favorite indicator from everything that we've done is that entrepreneurs are saying that they buy more food for their families. And um, secondly, that they've been able to send at least one more kid to school for the first time of their kids. So, you know, I love just saying that we're not a sponsorship education organization at all, but 1100 kids have gone to school for the first time because those parents actually now can afford to send them. And that's, that's phenomenal. And I think that's a really true testament of giving somebody a job, they're now working and self-sufficient. We're no longer funding them or pouring more money into that entrepreneur, but that you're, you're seeing that whole family stabilize because of that job. I noticed you have the Adventure Project's core values posted on the website. Being clear on the core values, I believe, is one of the most important attributes to becoming a great organization. It speaks to what we care about and what, how we you know, want to do our work and, and what we put our effort and our energy towards. Because ultimately, our supporters have to have affinity towards that, right? They have to share their same values that we share, because it's their choice to give, you know, they don't have to give, they can give to one of a million organizations. I think we want to just be as real and as transparent and relatable as possible. I want to give to an organization that I trust, right? And that's, that's where I give philanthropically too. I give to organizations where I trust them. So looking ahead, um, what's next for you personally and for the Adventure Project? You know, I think it's all intertwined. It's eventually when you're running your own thing, right? Personal and, and business is the same. For us, we're still growing. We're working remotely now. Uh, we had an office in Brooklyn for the last two years. And um, with COVID, we've decided to go remote. But I think one beautiful thing that's come from that is that we've really had to get hyper-focused on our own growth, meaning that we can run even more efficiently in, in some ways. So We've been hiring remotely, which is diversifying our talent pool, uh, which is great. We're trying to really work towards diversifying everything we do from our board to our team to our interns. How can we make sure that we're being a very social justice-minded, anti-racist organization and really leading with people of color in charge, which is my ultimate vision? With that being said, I'm trying to break off pieces of our, our business and see how can we find the right people or experts to run these divisions. And they don't have to be all in New York, all coming in for the Monday meeting. So it, it changes culture and changes dynamic. In some ways, a beautiful thing. And, you know, I hope as a society, we all kind of chillax a little bit and just reframe expectations for what it means to be uh, a parent or a woman or a professional that um, we need to give more grace to people and also focus on what's most important. I, I'm keen to really grow an organization with that mindset 
and with people who are just really top of their game and excited to kind of help end extreme poverty in our, our lifetime. You know, I, I mentioned to you, like we expanded to two countries this year. We're hoping to expand to more. I think, you know, we wanted to expand to five. That was kind of a bummer with COVID. We realized we needed to scale back. One of the most awesome things we've seen is that, you know, people that we helped hire 10 years ago are, are still working, you know, and I think that's what I want to keep repeating to people is when you're giving someone a job and a livelihood so that they can stand on their own, it's not an endless cycle of funding, right? We're slowly strengthening economies and strengthening families and saving children's lives because they now have access to people and professionals and essential workers in these villages so that aid isn't isn't needed. Aid is just the catalyst to help transform, you know, society for the better. So I just want to close with a couple of questions I've been asking each guest. You know, what's the path not taken for you? What, what would you be doing today if you weren't working on the Adventure Project, do you think? Oh, gosh. You know, I've been thinking about that a lot because I like being a mom. And so I think there's that tension of like, oh man, like I want to really participate in the preschool thing and the craft thing. But I love what I do and I'm still really driven and excited about being able to help people. And that really keeps me going. So I don't know what I, what I would do otherwise. I feel really, really lucky that I'm figuring out how to do both, how to be a parent and how to run the organization. With the asterisk caveat that I feel like I'm feeling every day, right? And I feel guilty every day if I'm with my kids. I'm like, I should be checking my phone, you know, loosening those ex- expectations and trying to carve out more time uh, to bucketize those things is, is something I struggle with. Yeah, I think everybody's struggling with that. And I think for myself and for people I talk to through this podcast and just friends, it's been an opportunity to refocus on what really matters. Outside of social entrepreneurship and uh, economic development, what is the most important cause that humanity can be tackling right now? Yeah, I feel very torn that I'm not doing more domestically, but I I still feel completely 110% strongly that we need to be focused in Africa right now. And that's where our time should be. There's no reason that a child should die because they don't have access to medicine that costs two bucks, you know, or they don't have clean water. Looking back from the future, when you're ready to, to hang it up and pass a torch, what would you like to have accomplished in your career? What impact would you like to have had? The most powerful stories to me are like the individual people I meet who've moved out of poverty. You know, and it's their individual stories that make me realize like, oh my gosh, we're doing something great right now. For me, the challenge of my job is it never ends right now. There's always going to be 800 million people that are living in extreme poverty. So it's not a solvable problem that the Adventure Project can take on by itself. So for me, I think a lot of the things I think about is like, well, how can we create this data or how can we share things so that other people and other organizations can take it on and do it? Um, so I get really excited when I see Charity Water talk about broken wells and talk about their well mechanics that they're training, you know, things like that. But it's like, OK, well, good. I'm so glad other organizations are also doing this work. And how can we all amplify it together versus like, well, I want to be leading an organization that's dominating everything. So last question, this is sort of a softball for you. You know, what can people who hear this podcast do to support your work at the Adventure Project? Yeah, that is a softball question. (laughs) I think, well, absolutely go to theadventureproject.org to learn more, join our email list, become a monthly donor. That's where we really would love to have you. I always say this too, but people can email me just beckystraw at theadventureproject.org. One of the most important things is how can we just get more people involved? Uh, You know, I 
by no means am trying to take all the credit, right? Like we would not be anywhere without other people standing up and saying, I'm going to do something in my local community, or I'm going to do a bake sale, or I'm going to, we have military families to executives at Silicon Valley who just give really generously and do really generous things to help tell the story of what we're doing and why it matters. So if there are people out there who love that, I'd love to talk to you. Or if you want to start something and want advice, happy to talk to you too. Anything else you want to talk about? No, I'll just say, um, we haven't talked about this, that I, I'm so proud of you. All the ways that you, know, you have impacted so many people and other charities, it's really inspiring. And I think you probably are behind the curtain and, and sometimes aren't really in front of it to see all the good that you've done. Thank you. Thank you. It means a lot. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been great having you. Of course. Uh, great talking to you, catching up, reconnecting. So that's our episode for today. Thank you for listening. And Becky, so awesome to catch up and hear your stories. If you want to learn more about The Adventure Project, you can visit their website at www.theadventureproject.org and on our own website at causeandpurpose.com. I know The Adventure Project has some exciting announcements coming up that we weren't quite able to talk about today. So hopefully we can get Becky back to talk about those when she's ready. We love hearing from you as well. So if you have any questions, comments, or guests you'd like to hear from, please leave us a comment or two through the website. Also, we hope you join us next time when our guest will be Zayana Hansen. Zayana, or Z as her friends call her, is the founder of Barbells for Boobs, a breast cancer awareness organization that encourages women to get screened at a much younger age than what the medical community typically recommends or even allows. We'll talk about that, as well as their partnership with CrossFit, and a new program they're launching called Resources After Diagnosis. You definitely don't want to miss it. Cause and Purpose is a production of Moonshot.co. On behalf of myself, Becky Straw, and our entire team, thank you for listening.